We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What up, what up, what up? Welcome into another edition of Green with Envy. As always, this is your boy, Will Weir, checking in. How you doing? How you living? Media day has come and gone. The Celtics are back in training camp. Practices are happening. And here to talk with me about the ball that bounces. It's my guy from our podcast and cousin from across the pond, the leader of the Taylor gang. It's the one and only Adam Taylor. Adam, the ball's bouncing again, and we have actual basketball just about back in our lives. How you doing, my guy? To paraphrase Joey from Friends, how Drew doing? Hey, there it is. The puns, so many they puns, are dude. coming. I got how's about them apples? How Drew doing? Um, Which I, I think I saw somebody post this one of one of Drew Holiday's nicknames, the Druth. The Druth. The Truth. The Druth. The Drew Holiday. I don't know where basketball reference gets these from. I'm sure they just make them up, you know. <laughs> that's one of my favorite things is looking up basketballreference.com and seeing i mean that's where our my love of the ogile factory came shout out to our guy semi ogile yeah, because i i can't believe you know we need, we need mike gorman to drop that you know on the uh or we needed him to drop that on the call but adam media day has come and gone drew holiday press conference happening uh, i believe either today or tomorrow as we're as we're recording this so things are moving in the celtics basketball world the first preseason game is coming up on sunday but right now to get us started here with this podcast i actually wanted to hit on joe Missoula made an appearance on the old man in the three with jj reddick now just a preface for those that haven't listened to it yet. Number one, go out and listen to it. It's a really, really great listen. We've been famous on the show for calling Joe Missoula a robot. And either he's becoming more human or the AI is getting way better. I don't know which one it is, but one of the two is happening. And so this is a really good listen. This interview did take place before the Drew Holiday trade was made. So that's just kind of important from a contextual perspective. But Adam, you know, collectively, we were pretty hard on Joe Missoula at different points, especially in the postseason. I think as the offseason went on, we had time to reflect. We kind of, you know, reeled in a little bit of some of our thoughts on, on Joe Missoula. We, we see them go out and immediately add to that coaching staff and just how vital it really was that he didn't have that support. You know, but but you have continued to be somewhat vocal in, you know, some of the decision making that that Joe Missoula exuded during the playoff run, the most recent playoff run for the Celtics. What was your takeaway hearing him on this podcast, which was a very different way for us to experience Joe Missoula that we don't usually get from just his, you know, quick hits with the media? What was your, what was your initial thoughts on it? So a lot of it was to do with the quick hits with the media, right? I think for me, one of the the biggest things he did that put him in contention with a lot of the fans was he came across so. Real quick, um, sorry about that. I think there was just a, a, a test going on, a national test system on the uh, presidential test on my phone. So apologies if you hear that in the background. That's dope, dude. We don't get that shit here. Yeah, um, I remember seeing a notification about this earlier, and I completely forgot. And it said it would be 218 Eastern. It's 118 Central. So that makes sense. But carry on, Adam. <laughs> so, yeah, like one of the biggest things for me that Missoula kind of shot himself in the foot with 
was the way he was so confrontational, so standoffish with media, right? And I felt like that left a bad taste in everybody's mouth because they're like, why is this guy so argumentative at points where he doesn't need to be argumentative? Then you hear him talk in the interviews, like I'm an extremely introverted person, struggled to deal with the additional kind of focus on me. Like he was like, why does everyone care about what I'm doing, what I'm saying? And then when you kind of contextualize that, like if I was that type of way as well, if I was closed off, if I was introverted and now I'm being forced to sit in a room with a bunch of strangers and have them pick apart every decision I've made. Yeah. I'd probably be a little bit contentious too. Do you know what I mean? I'd be firing back. I mean, as well. he also talked about, being, he's, he's just naturally an introvert, right? He talked about, you know, taking the surface elevator when, you know, when he was assistant coach, because he was like, ah, I just, I, you know, he, not that he didn't go out and make relationships, but there were certain parts of the job that just like he, especially as the fourth assistant that he was like, I'm just going to come in, watch film, do my job. And, you know, and I'm going to leave. And, you know, Al Horford, he said Al Horford came up to him and, and this is probably why you saw so much of Joe leaning on Al, where even at times we were saying, is Al Horford the coach of this team? You know, Al was the one in the middle coaching. And, and I think Joe is learning a lot from Al because Al is such, you know, an, an NBA veteran going into his 17th NBA season, I believe, which is which is wild to think that Al Horford's, you know, Al Horford's NBA career can drive a car. Like, top six that's, oldest players in the league, dude. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, Joe Missoula, I think in this interview with J.J. Redick, it was, I, I think it was really refreshing to hear how much he had a chance to actually reflect on the season because of how chaotic it was for him to really enter that scenario in the manner in which it happened. Uh, which by the way, I also thought it was fascinating that within his, one of his first moves to try to offer JJ Reddick a coaching job twice, you know, in the, the second time was important, right? Cause the second time was like midway all star. That was after time. Damon Stoudemire yeah. left. Yeah. When he needed more, more coaching. So it was interesting to, to hear him talk about, you know, going through the motions, right. And, to try to, and I don't have anything I can compare it to in my life, but to do my best to put myself in, in Joe Missoula's shoes, you know, some of the stuff that felt obvious, whether it was slippage on the defensive end, which I still finished second in defensive rating, but I test obviously told us, I think, a little bit different throughout the season. Uh, and, you know, Joe Missoula calling timeouts, and you hear him talk about his philosophy and, and, and reasons why he maybe didn't have the proper focus. And, you know, we talk about this in our upcoming interview here on the other second half of this podcast. If you're listening on YouTube, scroll up. You'll see our interview with Michael Pina of the of the Ringer where we touched on this a little bit where he talks about, I didn't emphasize defense because in my mind, I'm a defensive guy. Defense is what you do. And this team had been so good on defense for the past four or five years, the years that he's been here on Brad staff, on Eme staff, in, you know, in Maine. This team has always been a, a top five to seven defense in that time frame. She's like, I don't need to mention that because that's second nature. That's like brushing your teeth where, you know, he wanted to go focus on other areas. And so you, you kind of forget that you need to, to, to see the whole picture. And I think it, it, it kind of snuck up on Joe Missoula last year and listening to him in this interview, it sounds like he's, he's had, he's saying all the right things as far as being able to take a step back and, and now look at it from, you know, from a 50,000 feet height or, or whatever, to be able to look down and see everything and not just focus on these individual components. Yeah. I think this is an introspective review, right? That's how I felt this interview was. It was very much give us your take on how it went down. Now let's just do an introspective introspective review on how you've evolved throughout the summer. And that's kind of, if somebody was asked me to, to label that podcast, that's how I'd do it, an introspective review of evolution, uh, the Joe Mazzula revolution. Because he does speak about, like, hey, there was times I was going home feeling guilty, not being able to sleep at night because I felt like decisions I made fucked the game up. They, they cost the team a win. Or I made the decision and then, I don't know, for example, the Heat go on an 8-0 run. And he's like, well, that correlates directly to the decision that I made. He was like learning to accept that not everything's going to be perfect, learning to accept that, you know, decisions I make won't always work. I think that was really interesting to hear because we put a lot of pressure on sports players, sports stars in general to just be perfect, you know? And we, one thing I say whenever, if you ever listen to me interview a player or a former player is I like to try and humanize them at some point because I'm like, we dehumanize these guys every single day. 
you know, it's why you don't hear me. Like, if you read my writing, I never call someone a, a, an athletic freak or like I say they do monster moves, but I never be like he's just a monster because you're dehumanizing. So I think that was something that Missoula was kind of trying to do was humanize himself and be like, yo, this wasn't easy, man. And yeah. <laughs> right. Like, it, it, and we've said this multiple times. The worst thing was they got to such a good start that it it validated whatever your initial when you're panicking, like, all right, what do I what do I focus on? Okay, the first two and a half two months of the season, we're on a historic pace. We're twenty one and four, blowing everybody out. This is all working. Okay, I'm doing the right things. And then when you need to adjust, it's it's really hard to do that on the fly. And I, and I think you're right. Like I said, I've called him a robot many many times on this podcast. There was a humanizing factor to hearing, you know, all the steps that it took for him to to go through that season and how challenging it it, it really was. I mean, I'm going to show my age here. I don't know if you remember the late '80s movies, movies Short Circuit. I feel like I've heard of this. I don't. I don't know the movie though. So it's basically about a robot that comes alive and he literally just wants input. He wants data, data. He wants to educate himself. So he goes around. He's, one of the lines is like, "Need input." need input and i feel like if you watch that movie and then like a montage of joe mazula's rookie season if we want to stick with this robot kind of narrative like the seasons alpha 5 getting the input right and now he's had time to like contextualize the data manipulate that data and now he's coming back ready for short circuit two where he's got jetpacks and rockets on his shoulders and shit you know what i mean he's got he's got new he's got robot friends too he's got coaches he's got exactly and he's got like like for the metaphorical sense he does have new weaponry to use he's got new ideas he'll have new voices around him and he's no longer a rookie because a lot of the stuff he said like you said i didn't realize i needed to harp on defense because to me second night that's a rookie mistake you'll hear rookie nba players be like Oh, I was so I was hyper focused on developing, being able to attack off the rip through, and I focused on it so much that I let my point of attack defense slip. Mm-hmm. Because you're a rookie and you're seeing everything in such a narrow scope compared to a veteran that sees the bigger picture and approaches things in a more diverse way. Like, yeah, man, he was a rookie thrown into one of the toughest jobs in the NBA, a contending team with uh, all star. Uh, and potentially like an expiring, you know, two years left, mm-hmm. a Jason Tatum, and they're coming off the finals. And everyone loved it, and at that point, because of what the Celtics have achieved under his rookie year, yep. it was a real. And uh, he doesn't say this in the interview. Sorry, I'm kind of killing the airway here. He doesn't say this in the interview, but one of the things I took from it, and I, I definitely read into this more, was like he kept saying, I was the fourth assistant. So he was hired over three guys more senior to him. Do you know what I mean? So then trying to get those guys that were above you in that like assistant pecking order to now buy into what you're trying yeah. to do and see you as the leader of this ship, that's hard, man. Because like, they tough. almost have felt slighted. Yeah, and it's you know one of the points I was gonna I was gonna say is he didn't have the proper support, right? The proper staff to to be able to get through those because you know one a lot of those other guys like Will Hardy was gone, Ime was obviously gone, Damon Sotomayor left two thirds of the way through the season, and so you're left with like who's gonna be the one to say, hey, here's what we need to change, here's what we need to do because you're too hyper focused on X, Y, or Z, and so I, I think you know. Listening to him with JJ, it gives me a reinvigorated hope for this year that I'm really excited to see what he does year two as a coach, year two with the proper staff, with Charles Lee, with Sam Cassell, with Bill Pressey, with others that he has brought in. And, you know, Adam, I know you, you wrote an article. What was the word that the, the phrasing that he used? Uh, tribal, tribal leadership. Tribal for leadership. A, for a wrestling, I mean, I'm AEW more than I am WWE, but for a wrestling fan, I instantly like, dude, we need Roman Reigns names instantly. I pull it out on Twitter and I got inundated with bots. Like, do you need Photoshop help? No, no, I don't. I want someone to just do me. A- really, really glad Elon cleaned up that bot problem on Twitter, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, there's no bots on Twitter, apparently. Twitter is, <laughs> there's no such thing as Twitter. It's X. Yeah, yeah, whatever it is. But anyways, <laughs> for, for those of you listening, definitely go listen to that podcast i think it will give you either validate how you feel about joe missoula or if you were like us who are a little bit skeptical not sure it it definitely gives you a a a much better read and feel on the joe missoula experience going in 
to year two. For those of you listening here on the podcast, we're actually going to talk a little bit more about this. We have an interview here that's going to run on the other side of this break. We were joined by Michael Pina, senior staff writer of The Ringer. A uh, really fun conversation getting set up for uh, the upcoming season, especially talking a lot about what the Dame and Drew Holiday moves for the context of the Eastern Conference. Uh, and if you're on YouTube and you want to check that out, either go check it out in the audio version or scroll on up. You should have already subscribed, so you probably got a notification. Scroll up, go ahead, click the interview. That will be in the podcast section of the YouTube page. Uh, but let's take a break. And on the other side, it's myself, it's Adam, and it's Michael Pina of The Ringer. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. All right, joining myself and Adam Taylor here for the first time on the Green with MB podcast, we have senior staff writer of the at the Ringer, formerly of Sports Illustrated, joining us today on the show. We have Michael Pina. Michael, what's going on, man? How you doing, Will? How you doing, Adam? Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, excited to make this happen. I know it's funny. We we tried to schedule this for for last week, and then we had to move it to to today. And honestly, it really couldn't have worked out better because in that time frame, we've obviously had Dame Lillard go to the Bucks, and then we've had Drew Holiday go to the Celtics, both of which, if you go to the ringer.com, you can find some excellent work from Michael on that website of articles that he posted right after those trades. And so that's really kind of the best place for us to start our conversation today. And I want to go to the end of the article uh, that you wrote about Drew Holiday to the Celtics on the ringer. And basically, after all the off-season drama around where's Dame Lillard going to go, and he ends up to the Bucks, and it's this monumental moment in the NBA offseason right before we hit media day. And basically what we find out just a few days later is that that massive three-team trade was really just basically a massive four-team trade that ultimately sent Drew Holiday to the Boston Celtics as a part of it. So the question I want to ask you is if the Bucks ultimately knew that their trade to go ahead and, in their minds, upgrade from Drew Holiday to Dame Lillard was ultimately going to end up with Holiday on the Celtics, do they still make that move knowing that's the result? The line was a little cheeky, uh, I'll admit. Um, I think that the, the the primary motivator for doing a trade like that if you're Milwaukee is because you are trying to appease Giannis Antetokounmpo, who is clearly disgruntled, um, or I should say clearly unsettled by a, in his eyes, um, stagnant front office um, and maybe an ownership group that isn't willing to be as aggressive as he would like to win another championship. So that's why you do that trade. You know that there's a lot of risk, a lot of downside. I think that, you know, they're crossing their fingers in that front office. They know that Drew Holiday is going to hit the open market when they do the trade like that and it's out of their control where he goes. And me personally, you know, I thought, like, I was kind of shocked that the Celtics got Drew. I thought he was bound for the Los Angeles Clippers. I thought that made the most sense by far. I thought they had the most assets to give up. 
Um, they had desirable players, expiring salary. Um, and I also did not think that the Celtics were, frankly, willing to give up either Al Horford or Rob Williams um, for fear of cutting into their depth. And it seemed like, uh, you know, throughout the offseason, they were prioritizing size. And um, that was really key for them, particularly knowing you'd have to go up against Giannis, knowing you'd potentially have to go up against someone like Joel Embiid, knowing to win the championship, there's obviously a shot that Nikola Jokic will be waiting for you in the finals. Size is really important, and front court depth right now in the league is immense. So to answer your question, um, I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that, you know, the books as presently constituted, or I should say as formerly constituted with Drew Holiday and the picks that they gave up in that trade and Grayson Allen, like – a lot was still hinging, in my opinion, on Chris Middleton uh, reverting back to the player he was pre-2022 in the first round against the Bulls when he hurt himself. And we haven't seen that player. And I think that even though they you know, they resigned him, um, he's one of the bigger X factors in the entire league. So it might not matter, um, frankly, that you traded for Damian Lillard in a playoff series if Chris Middleton is not adequate um, defending on the perimeter, if he's not as potent from the mid-range if he's not um, just that assassin, offensive assassin that he was when they won the NBA championship. So um, I think, like, I'm rambling, but I would – I'd be really petrified, honestly, if I was the Bucks of the fact that they got Drew Holiday um, and upgraded – essentially this offseason, Boston upgraded at point guard – or whatever position you thought Marcus Smart was versus Derek White versus Drew Holiday. I think they upgraded uh, Drew Holiday is a better player than Marcus Smart. And then, you know, at the five or however you want to look at it, they upgraded talent-wise with Chris Tapps Porzingis. There's really no doubt about that. So, like, Boston's top five, top six is the best in the NBA. A lot has been made about their lack of depth. I think it's a slightly overblown. Um and I know I'm, again, being really long-winded, but the Bucks are really good, but I feel like they have more question marks than uh, the Celtics do. I just want to poke some fun at the Heat right now. So, just because why not? There was a report came out after, I think it was after your article came out, where I think it was Woj said that Miami had actually offered a substantial package for Drew as well, and then Cronin decided just to trade Drew to Boston anyway. Would you would you see, view that as like a big fu from Portland to Miami for how the entire uh, summer kind of played out? Um, I I would like to know what the package was exactly. Um, clearly, Joe Cronin did not appreciate how uh, Damian Lillard and Damian Lillard's agent tried to ruin his trade value in the marketplace by eliminating all potential suitors. And that's his right to be upset about something like that. And I think that the haul that Portland got from this and what was really kind of ingenious in getting someone like Holiday and then being able to flip him for assets. And then it's kind of just like a snowball going down a mountain. Like, they'll, I presume that they will flip Malcolm Brogdon um, to a team like the Clippers. And the Clippers are probably looking at it like, Okay, we would have had to give up two firsts for Drew. Now we only have to give up, you know, probably one, if that, for Malcolm Brogdon, based on what his market is right now. I don't know how many teams are chomping at the bit to get Malcolm Brogdon, um, despite him coming off a six-man-of-the-year uh, winning season. So, yeah, I do kind of think it was a little bit of an FU, probably. Um, and... I think like Miami is in just a lot of pain right now because their whole offseason was set up to get Damian Lillard and that was the presumed outcome for them. You know, they did not want to lock up their long they were really conscious of their long-term cap flexibility, letting Max Drews go to Cleveland, uh, letting Gabe Vincent go to the Los Angeles Lakers. Those are two really big players for them in the postseason. Um, uh, two real like key culture guys for them and 
I'm not ruling that team out because I never thought that Max Drews would be as good as he was for them. And never, I didn't even know who Gabe Vincent was four years ago. So um, they'll probably find someone who knows what these rookies will look like or these young players on their roster. Maybe Haywood Highsmith looks like, I don't even know. Um, That's kind of the point. We don't know, right? Is that (laughs) he's going to evolve into something that we may not see coming. But I, I think this is hitting on one of the bigger parts of of this drew holiday move and you know i was with you michael i i didn't really think the celtics were going to get holiday adam and i did kind of an immediate reaction podcast to dame lillard going to the bucks and we threw around the topic of of drew holiday and i kind of landed where you were that that i didn't think the celtics were going to part with with al i didn't think made much sense unless they're just going to flip malcolm and al and you know at some point they want other young players so i figured rob and malcolm was kind of the package and you know for me at first i was like maybe that's a little bit too much i just don't see them them going you know that path but then greg you know our other co-host brought this up and i think it's a really important part is that you know holiday coming to the to the celtics while it hurts your depth and we can argue over what's more important that top end depth or just having more guys in your rotation that's that's fine but what it also does is it prevents holiday from going to miami from going to Philadelphia, from going to, you know, I don't know if the Nuggets would ever be in the mix, but just going to another one of those top-tier contenders and keeping him away from those teams is, you know, almost just as valuable as it is bringing him in, a guy who got second-team All-NBA votes from your boss, Bill Simmons, from Zach Lowe, from from well-respected, you know, members of the media. This guy was an All-Star, an All-NBA, and you're adding NBA talent, adding him to your already, you know, pretty stacked team you know from that top six so uh, i'm curious you said you're not counting miami out now and i'm with you i uh, you know we've eaten crow too many times on this podcast feeling like we can write off the heat or that i mean i still can't fully explain to you like you said how gabe vincent and max drews were starting in the nba finals and caleb martin maybe should have been the eastern conference finals mvp against the celtics last year i i still can't fully explain that but when you look at this offseason and the way that it's shaken out and let's just stick to the eastern conference for now is there any argument that it's not the celtics and bucks in one tier and then everybody else i think heading into the season it's really hard to make an argument for any other team um being in that company i think it's clearly those two are the most talented uh the most accomplished then again, like this is also artificial. Like it's October fourth. Um, none of these teams have played a game yet, not even a preseason game. And you don't know who's going to be healthy. You don't know about. Um, you know, there's just so many like inner chemistry related issues that the Celtics are going to have to figure out um, that are going to be challenging. Like. I think pretty much everyone in Miami knows their role coming into the season. There's like no confusion. Whereas in Boston, they really need to like Chris Depsporzingis' role is like really interesting to me. It's critical all of a sudden. Like I thought he was important before the trade for Drew, but I also thought that there was a shot that if he were to get hurt in the playoffs, that they could withstand that and win the NBA championship. Um, But now with like Grant Williams also out the door, like he's humongous on the defensive end with rim protection, with rebounding. Um, And is he going to kind of, I feel like he's the number one person who has to sacrifice on this team in a lot of ways. And so is he going to accept that? Um, is he going to accept like really giving a hundred percent effort and creating second chance opportunities on, on tap backs off offensive off in offensive rebound situations? Like, is he really going to accept being like, I think there's going to be possessions where he's standing alone on the perimeter and spacing the floor. There's going to be possessions where he's a decoy. There's going to be possessions where, you know, he picks and pops and doesn't touch the basketball. There's going to be stretches where he probably wants a post touch and he's not going to get it. So I just think like that's a part of, I mean, that's why the season is so long. You can hopefully iron those things out. Um, You can hopefully navigate storms where maybe he won't even close um, 
in certain situations. Or maybe Al Horford has a lot of pride all of a sudden. Not all of a sudden. He's always had a lot of pride. But, like, he's benched for every crunch, most crunch time situations. Like, and how he, does he respond to that? Um, and, like, kind of hanging over all this is the fact that the guy who sacrificed last year was Malcolm Brogdon. And they, like, immediately tried to trade him. So <laughs> I think, like, um, so much can happen during a regular season. It's really long. Um, there's so many variables. Luck is always involved, particularly once you get to the playoffs. But, like, right now, yeah, it's like the Celtics and the Bucks are, you know, it's like Celtics, Bucks, and then out west. I know you wanted to stick to the east, but, like, Nuggets, Suns, those are probably like the four teams, maybe the Warriors too, that I would be looking at to be in a similar tier. You, when we're talking about the amount of top tier talent, sort of top end depth for that top six, top seven for the Celtics, they haven't been this deep since like what, 2018, 2018, 19, that season where they had, um, there was Kyrie, there was Terry coming off that scary Terry run, and everything just imploded, right? Now, with everything you've kind of pointed out with, Porzingis, and then you, Drew's going to have to sacrifice a little bit too. Does Jalen Brown see less kind of touches because he's not going to be focused on, on creation as much? So he might still have a high usage rate, but his touches might drop. Um, do you see any chance? What odds would you give of hopefully not happening, but of a similar implosion, especially with someone as inexperienced as Missoula trying to lead that rotation? Um, well, there was someone on the Celtics when they imploded who no longer plays for the this Celtics. This is true. <laughs> he who should he, not be named? Is that, is, that the, is that the approach we're going? <laughs> I think that might have been a little bit of a factor. But I do, I do think about that team. I think about Terry Rozier saying they were too talented a lot. Um, I'm not really a believer in, uh, you know, there's only one basketball. I think that that's a, always an overblown criticism and a little bit of a lazy one. I think like Tatum knows how to share the ball. Drew Holiday just played with, I mean, he was the third option the past few years when everyone was healthy um, in Minnesota. And I think like there was a lot made of, I know I just went and I was talking about Porzingis for a while and a lot was made of how unhappy he was in Dallas with Luka Doncic and I do think that right now at this point in his career, he's 28, um, hasn't had a lot of success, any success in the playoffs. His career clearly hasn't gone how a lot of people thought it would when he was this phenom all-star on the New York Knicks. And I think like a lot of the physical ailments that he's had and the on-court issues that he's had, like that's humbling. So I would think and hope that especially as someone who just got paid with his extension that he'd be willing to sacrifice and be fine with it. Um, we'll see though. Like I don't, I don't necessarily foresee Jalen Brown um, cutting a big chunk of, I feel like Brown and Tatum are kind of like a cut above everybody else in a lot of ways. Like they're the leaders of the team. They're the best players. Their pecking order is kind of established, right? Yeah, and you I know that Jalen Brown had a really disappointing postseason, particularly in the end there. Um he's just like a really incredible player. And I think that um Drew and Derek White being on the court with him at the same time will only benefit in a lot of ways. Like you made a really good point about the usage versus touches thing, Adam. Like I agree with that for sure. But I think like at the end of the day, shots will be there for Jalen. Um, Jalen also is such like a heat-seeking missile in transition, creating his own um, opportunities and scoring chances, and that will not change. So I like to call him the play finisher. I, I catch heat yeah. for it, but that, yeah. that's kind of the role I like to see him in. Yeah, I mean, he's an exclamation point, right? Like, that's, that's what he is. That's what he's great at. That's why he was second-team All-NBA last season. And so there is definitely a world where you see these pieces and they fit really, really, really well um, on both ends of the court. And to me, it just comes down to, to health. Um, and I'm not as concerned about it as a lot of people. I don't assume that Porzingis will be hurt. I don't assume that um, 
Al Horford, because he's 37, will see significant decline. That's really not how I look at the NBA when I'm analyzing stuff in October that's going to happen months <laughs> from now. Like, those are the same people who say, like, Jamal Murray will never will never be healthy. Um, look, what, look what happened. Michael they won a championship. <laughs> Michael Porter Jr. just, like, will never be healthy. It's like that dude was the second-best player in a finals clinching win a few months ago. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a little lazy and silly to a certain extent. Um, and KP talked about this. I think he said like, he's not injury prone and the injuries that he's had were unlucky contact injuries. And to a certain extent, that's like true. And KD said the same thing when he had his most recent knee injury where he's like, I forget what exactly what he said, but, and I forget who fell into his knee. I think it was someone on the Miami heat fell into his knee. Um, or even like when he stepped on the basketball mm-hmm. in the, and sprained his ankle and missed however many games when he first got to the suns, I just think like fluky things can happen. It's basketball. It's a contact sport. Um, and there are ways to prevent yourself from getting injured and guys work really hard. And I don't know. I think that that's a really like boring way to analyze. But I I think you're right because to a certain degree, it's also just timing, right? Like, like you might have a two week injury, but if you get that two week injury, like Giannis did in the first round of the playoffs, like it's a pretty shit time to have it. And you know, he's not injury prone, but he had the injury at the wrong time. Right. So, so I think that plays a massive part of it. This is something that, you know, Adam and I have talked a bunch about is that you can't predict when those injuries are going to occur, occur, if they're going to occur and they can happen to anybody. The Bucks were healthy, you know, say for Middleton and his stuff, but, but they were a fully formed team when that happened. And then there goes their season in five games because of, of, of that timing. And so you have to prepare, like you said, especially on October 4th, that, hey, what does our team look like when we have everybody at their max capabilities? And then how do we, you know, shape, shift, and form that team that, that we're expecting to have? And of course, you have to have kind of backup plans for, for what happens, but that's not the way that you go in planning for the season. And so, of course, the guy that has to has to do all that is Joe Missoula. So I want to take a quick break here for one second, Michael, and then we'll come back. I want to talk a little bit about Joe Missoula here. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So we're now heading into year two of the Joe Missoula experiment. Have you had a chance to listen to him on uh, The Old Man and the Three? I know it just came out this morning with J.J. Reddick. Okay. Well, let's let's start there. What were your thoughts on on that version of Joe Missoula? Because I'll be honest, we we made a lot of jokes about him feeling like a robot last year um, in all of his interactions. Or anytime you heard him speak, he was almost imitating what he thought a coach was supposed to sound like when engaging with the media. He sounded much more human, and to me, in his interview with JJ Redick. So I'm curious to hear what what your reactions were to that interview. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting enlightening interview um just speaking about um you know the basketball talk was fascinating to me obviously that interview happened before drew was traded but after dame was traded to the bucks um it would have been even more interesting if drew was in boston um when they talked but i just love him talking about everything he learned like he's 
a little younger than I am. And what he did last season is like one of the most unfathomable things to me, like just being thrust into the situation that he was in, um, having absolutely no head coach experience at the NBA level, having a super thin bench. Um, and to a certain extent, making it up on the fly. And like he talked about, you know, his personality quirks that were held against him, like his stubbornness. I thought that was really interesting. I thought that when he talked about um, the need to have curveballs in the playoffs, which he mentioned like several times, that was really, uh, I mean, that's true. And, um, there are really a lot of interesting ways that they can have, you know, the proverbial curveball with this team and, and this roster and um, defensively and offensively. And also one of the things that just like statistically, one thing he pointed out that has been something that I've really been thinking about after the Drew trade in terms of low key beneficial is this team just doesn't create a lot of turnovers and they have no source for that. And like mm -hmm. Drew Holiday is just like, I mean, the biggest play of his career is him like ripping Devin Booker, going the other way, throwing a lob to Giannis. Like he's just, he makes things happen at great times. I mean, against the Celtics, the block, the throw off Marcus Smart at the end yeah. of game five. Like he just makes immense plays. It's not like we, the Celtics haven't had a lot of really great players who do stuff like that. Um, I mean, one just left the team and Marcus Smart, for sure. Uh, but I just thought that, like, the way Drew plays and the way he hounds you full court and, like, turns you and single-handedly is able to take away first options on actions and he just and I, bodies you and wears you down. Yeah, no, go ahead, Will. I was going to say, and I think with, with the Celtics, I think this is the also the other underrated part of it is he's going to be unleashed to do so, right? Because he's not going to have the same offensive burden that he's had in, in other past parts of, of his career. He's going to be a third, fourth option with, you know, you talked about Middleton hasn't really been Middleton for a year and a half to, to two years. So he's really been the number two offensive engine option, you know, with the Bucks, with Giannis here, he's going to be a third, fourth option, that third option, you know, most of the times he'll probably be that fourth option. So a lot of that energy is going to be used on the defensive end, him creating havoc and him, you know, making those momentum changing plays that you're describing. Absolutely. Um, so him, Derek White, like those two together in a backcourt is just like, it's really scary to think about for opponents. Um, and then when you hear things like, you know, you hear Jason and Jalen talk about um, the impact that they want to have on the defensive end this season. I think that I mean, the expectation right now should be for this team to be like top five in offense, top five in defense, one or two or three in net rating. Like the balance is, should be there. Um, and I know this is a little random, but like one thing I hear a lot about is like, um, you know, the Celtics don't have um, the same amount of big bodies with Grant going and Rob going. I think like, honestly, Jason Tatum is a humongous person. He's really under, I don't know if he's underrated, but probably not by you guys. Cause you watch a lot, but like, he's an amazing gang rebounder. Like if he's near the ball, he usually gets it. I think that's like one of the more overlooked parts of his game. Um, like great rebounder for his size. Earlier in the season last year, the chase down blocks were like, you'd have like two a game, it felt like. Yeah. Um, and just as someone like, for just like I'm thinking about, you know, how Jimmy Butler obliterated Drew Holiday in the playoffs last year because he's bigger than him. It's like if that's a huge issue, you can just throw Jason Tatum on Jimmy Butler. Like if you go back and watch that series, Jimmy Butler's not – doing anything against Jason Tatum. That's just like not going to happen. He's huge. Yeah. So even in a, in a, like, I'm not saying throw Jason Tatum on Giannis. I don't think that's like a great 
use of your resources. But can he guard him for a stretch and not get obliterated? Like, yeah, I, I do think he can. I think he's a huge dude and um, gives you a lot of different – allows you to play a lot of different ways with a lot of different lineups. Kind of sticking on this size discussion, but also going back to the curveball at the same time. Earlier, like you mentioned that the Celtics, you felt like the Celtics were aiming to build size. And what they've ended up doing is just adding a bunch of length, like ridiculous amounts of length off the bench. One of the reasons I'm personally so high on Jordan Walsh is because he can close out to the perimeter without really jumping and he can be on the free throw line while doing it. He's got stretch Armstrong arms. Um, do you see that curveball with the amount of length that they've got, how active they can be in the passing lanes, how active they can be forcing guys weak and then pinching in to try and garner steals that way? Do you see them going more zone, more zone, more zone, or zone more frequently? It's the same question. I just worded it two ways. <laughs> no, I think like, um, I mean, when Joe Mazzulla is talking about throwing a curveball out there, that's like the first thing that popped into my head when you're like, we're switching everything. Okay, now we're going into a two-three zone or a one-three-one zone with all of our size. Like putting Drew Holiday at the top of a zone, like. Drew and Derek White or Drew and Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown. Just like the personnel is really crazy. O'Shea Brissett, too, is like a really good size. Jordan Walsh, really good size. I'm really intrigued by what his role is necessarily going to be um, on this team. But like Banton, too. Banton's huge. I don't really know what his role is going to be if he has one. But I think he gets a little bit overlooked in the, in the fray and had some moments that were really intriguing with the Raptors the last couple of years. Um, so I think that that's a really good point. Um, I would, I think like having that in your back pocket is really valuable. Um, practice time in the NBA is so infrequent and it's really difficult to develop things. It's why the Miami Heat, why Eric Spolstra is so great. Like, I don't really know how he does that. Um, the the 2020 inverted to free zone will forever be what I just, if you tell me name the best zone defense you've ever seen, it's Miami 2020 bubble uh, inverted to free, have your wings in your big up top and then put your two smalls down bottom and uh, somehow you dominate all the way through. Uh, like that to me is incredible. Yeah. Just think about Andre Iguodala and that zone. Like he was a menace. Um, that was really. And that's who actually uh, our our colleague Greg compares Jordan Walsh so without him stepping on NBA court yet. That's who he wants. That's who his kind of his comp for Jordan Walsh potentially could be as a guy like Andre Iguodala. Defensively, defensively, um, that would be ideal. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, Andre is like a. I mean, should go to the Hall of Fame probably. Um, but no, that would be terrific. I honestly can't like sit here and be like I've watched, I've crunched the Jordan Walsh tape because I yeah. have. Um, but <laughs> yeah, but I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing, I'm sure he'll play a lot in the preseason. Um, and he has a clearly defined role as a rookie too, which is really nice. Um, and yeah, I just look up and down the roster and there's a lot of really big, it's funny, like the most important player who's off the bench is probably Peyton Pritchard. Well, not the most important, the second most important player off the bench. Um, and he's obviously this, like one of the smallest guy on the team, I guess. But he also rebounds and plays above his size and is mm-hmm. good low center of gravity. Um, but no, I think yeah, size is really important. And I think having uh, like developing, working on his own, it'll be really interesting to see if they just throw it out there random times during the regular season. If they do, then you know what that's for. That's for. Um, key spots in the playoffs when they're trying to break the other team's rhythm. Yeah, it's it's really funny when you look at the Celtics bench aside from Al Horford, you basically have, you know, Peyton Pritchard's six feet, six foot one, whatever, whatever he is, Luke Cornett's seven foot two, and then everybody else is six foot seven. 
you know, just like up and down the roster. I know our guy Bill Sy over at uh, Celtics blog has referenced this a few times that basically Brad Stevens has only been signing guys this offseason that fit the six, seven mold from Banton to Brissett to Lamar Stevens, Jordan Walsh, so on and so forth. So let, let's stick with with the bench brigade for for right now. And let's remove Al Horford from this because you just touched on this, that, you know, Peyton Pritchard might be the second most important guy. Because we got to get through all 82 games, right? Like, there's gonna these guys are gonna have to play. I know we can gush over that that top six, and ultimately, when you get to the playoffs and you know making deep runs, those six are gonna have the most impact. But to get through all 82 games, who do you see as the difference makers from from those guys? You know, roster spots seven through ten that are gonna get minutes and that could have some impact for the for the Celtics in the regular season. I mean, I've always been high on Peyton Pritchard like really high on him. I'm excited for him to get a chance this year. Finally. Yeah. Um, just, I remember talking to people, um, in and around the Celtics before they drafted him. Um, and just hearing what they really liked about him. And I think a lot of it has translated over the past couple of years. Um, last year, obviously it was really wonky cause they get Brogdon. But, you know, there was like there's like inner conversations um, in that front office and there's debate about like, well, why would we give up, you know, X, Y, Z draft compensation to get Malcolm Brogdon when is he really that much better than what Peyton Pritchard's going to be? That's like a real conversation that the Celtics had in their front office before you make a trade like that. Um, I think he's really good. And... Uh, He's up there for me, for sure. I'm expecting a big season from him. Um, you know, I I think Sam Hauser's fine. Like, the Michael Malone said something last year about how um, the Denver Nuggets have no specialists. That's like a thing that they don't want to have on their team. And Sam Hauser's a little bit of a specialist, I would say. But what he specializes in um, is extremely valuable. Um, it fits pretty much anywhere. And I feel like it can be really complimentary again with the key players on this team. And the fact that you have, you know, white holiday, Jalen Tatum, KP, like those five guys, less so Derek white, but, when you stagger, like staggering the four who are really great offenses under themselves or like capable shot creators, whatever, however, they're just really good players. And so the lineup combinations that you have when you're staggering and who you're putting, how you're mixing and matching those four guys with players on the bench, it's like there will always be or there can always be one or two or three or four of those guys and that sort of lifts your floor and it makes everyone else better so that's why i'm not really that concerned about the bench i also think that you know them adding someone particularly in the front court i know they just um brought in Wendy and gabriel on a was that like a training camp deal it's not like guaranteed i don't think um, i believe that's right yeah they announced it yesterday and the wording made it sound guaranteed but the the reports that Exhibit 10, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I believe that they still have a roster spot, if I'm not mistaken. I would assume that, um, you know, I would assume that they sign a big. And there's like a lot of, I'm not saying like get Noah Vonley in here, but like, <laughs> please not. But there's like, <laughs> honestly, like there's, uh, you know, off the top of my head, Someone like Bismack Miambo played in the playoffs. That's the name I was going to throw out at you too, is Bismack Miambo. Yeah, just someone who's, I don't think he's on an NBA roster right now. Um, someone who can soak up minutes, totally knows his role, um, great locker room presence. Um, just so, like, it's not, I don't think that the depth thing is that big of an issue um, at this point. And. Yeah, I also think that like Luke Cornett is like super underrated and 
when you really focus in on like what he does well, it's kind of like what he's out there to do. So I don't really understand why he gets killed. I know he looks really goofy and he's like, you know, got the, the eclipse and all that, but like good rim protector has good hands, efficient, um, can come up a little bit on the, on a drop. Like, I don't know. I don't know what you're asking of Luke Cornett, but like, he's someone who can give you 15 minutes in the regular season and you're not going to die. So definition of a, of an 82 game player, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I really don't know what like the, I was honestly, I'm just like a little surprised by the reaction to this trade because I know I'm going big picture, but like, to me, it's just like, they're clearly the favorite. That's like what I said. I just like, I'm not like, oh, trying to overthink this. It's just like they added Drew Holiday. He's great for this role. Like, he's a great player by, he made the all-star team last year. Made an all-defensive team in the past three years. Like, really great player. And you add Chris Tapps Porzingis. And he's like your fourth option. And he hits like 38, 39% of his threes. And he can't be guarded at the, the, at the elbows. And gives you just a totally different look. And they have the guy who finished fourth in MVP last year, the guy who finished second team All-NBA as a forward. Those two get better every single year. Um, I just, I, I'm just like, this is the, I haven't even said Derek White's name. Like, I just thought that they were clearly the best team. And again, this is very artificial. It's on paper, whatever. But like for so many people to come out against, all you need, like their depth in the front court is like going to kill them. It's just like, what I, what do you, I don't know. It's just like, is, is, is Brooke Lopez indestructible? He like didn't play two years ago and he's 36 years old. Like, you know what I mean? Like everybody has issues like that. So I, I don't know. Um, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I just thought like, that was silly to me, like as a, as a thing where it's like, uh, I feel like the weaknesses of this team are really small compared to just like what the ceiling is. Like the ceiling is just like, dominance like that and i don't think a lot of teams can can flex that talking of the weaknesses keeping it minimal one of the smaller aspects that i found majority towards the second half of the season not so much the first was their nail help got like was just not non-existent at times especially when um trying to contain dribble penetration usually you'd have someone come over and try and help with the nail whether they're stunting digging or you know whatever switches are recurring you try and help out that kind of went away. So I'm just wondering, like, what that was one of my bugbearers. I don't know if Americans use that term. Um, that was one of the things that annoyed me the most throughout the end of the season. What was, would you pinpoint as the one issue, small issue that you were kind of like, dude, they need to fix this ahead in next year because teams would exploit it? That's a good question. I mean, I think that. I mean, you could go to pace and crunch time offense. That's one thing. Um, I feel like Missoula talked a lot about some of these things, you know, in that in that interview that we referenced earlier, yeah. like different areas that needed to. I mean, you you already referenced the you know the curveball that he talked about a couple times, and then of course you know the 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 biggest bugaboo was, oh hey, you're the coach that doesn't call timeouts, right? And so he and he actually kind of goes into explaining that, but then you know, like you said, talking about creating turnovers a little bit more you know just just a another variable to throw out there yeah i'm trying to think like there's such a good i don't know it's like what when you just look if you were to break down like any other team in the league it's like i think they were the only one that finished top five on both ends um much contrary to what everybody believed, because everyone was like, dude, this team sucks on D. And then every, I, the amount of times I had to log back into NBA stats to see if I was seeing something different to everyone else, because I'm like, they're not doing that bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. It's like, it's one of those things where you get, I mean, 
I would have loved for them to play Grant Williams more. That was a thing. <laughs> Michael, it's, it's, it's like you belong on the show with us. <laughs> that, that, that was one of our main talking points last year was where's the Grant, especially by the time we got to the playoffs, is, you know, where were the Grant Williams minutes? Yeah, and that's one person who is really funny to me how they were, the Celtics were, you know, really trying to avoid the second apron before the Drew Holiday trade, right? And one of, that's one of the reasons why Grant leaves. And I understand the long-term money and, you know, he wouldn't have been on the team for the entirety of his contract, even if they re-signed him. But, um, like, I think he'll be missed. He's just, like, a really good player. It's no coincidence that Jason Kidd is like, I have three starters and then I don't know what else is going to happen with my rotation. And Grant Williams is one of those players that doesn't, like, shock me at all. He's a natural fit next to superstars and totally understands that. And that's pretty rare at a young player in the NBA. Um, I don't know. It was really interesting just going back to that Joe interview, what he brought up about how he didn't feel the need to harp on defense at all because they're always really good on defense and they're top five regardless. So, I like the way that he, uh, he compared it at one point to brushing your teeth where yeah. he's like, yeah, I just thought it was something you know to do. You know, just just play defense. Like it yeah. wasn't something that I needed to to bring up and remind the guys to do. So I thought that was interesting to think about the you know the chaos he was thrown into. And it's like, oh, they know to play defense. I need to focus on these other areas that that are concerning. Yeah, I think about things that Joe said. Um, bef- like I guess coming into the season off the finals loss when he's like. I spent the whole offseason studying our offense and trying to figure out ways for our offense to become unglued in tight situations and become less predictable. Um, And then he becomes the head coach. And you see, like, the start that I think – I don't know when Boston started to cool off, but, like, the first month, two months of last season, whatever it was, like, everything was historic like across the board statistically, they were just absurd. Um, That's probably one of the worst things that could happen to them though, right? Like <laughs> you've got this new young head coach, you go on this crazy, what was it? 18 and two run. Then you head out West, you get smacked about a little bit from a few Western guys. And then all of a sudden the doubt creeps in and you've set this ridiculously high bar to try and get back to. And then all, all season long, you're just trying to climb that ladder back up and, they just never got there, and I feel like that had a bit of an impact on that, the way well, they approached I think it, I think it justified some of his panic thoughts, right, of I, I just got this job. I'm, I'm trying to figure this out on the fly, and so you just go with – you know, he mentioned he's a classic overthinker, and so he at, he, at that time he didn't have time to overthink. He's like, all right, don't focus on defense. Focus on threes, offense, and then to your point, Adam, when you get off to a 21-4 and four start or whatever the hell it was, it's like, okay, this was the way. I had this right, and, you know, and he talks about I didn't have time to – ease into figuring out you know not just my methodology but how do i coach my methodology or my philosophy i think is what he referred to it as dude i went i've spent 18 months trying to figure out whether to put more effort into instagram or twitter without an answer after you were the first person i thought of when he said he was an overthinker (laughs) 18 months and i'm still without an answer right now so when he said i'm an overthinker like i instantly had a relatability factor with him i'm like dude if I'd been in your position, I would have been like, right, do we screen? Do we rip screen? Like, how am I? I'd still be trying to figure out last season's offense when I was 50. Like, that's how much <laughs> I'd be trying to overthink it. Oh, man. Well, we're excited for, for season two of uh, of Joe Missoula. But, Michael, I know I said that we'd, we'd keep you to about 45 minutes. We're, we're at that right now. We've had a great time chopping it up with you here. And we want to have you back on again later in the season but before we let you go we want to play a quick game with you and then i promise we will uh we will get you out of here to go about your day uh we want to hit you with what we call the green with envy fast break so what we do is we're going to go ahead we're going to put 60 seconds on the clock and by the clock it's just my cell phone here we're not we're not super high tech we don't have that technology built into the platform yet but we're going to put 60 seconds on the clock adam and i are going to go back and forth asking you quick hit questions yes no this or that name this rank these uh and then basically i'm going to cut it up into a clip trap you into a take and then we'll put it out there for the internet to judge does that that sound cool beautiful (laughs) all right all right so here we go we are going to queue up our green with envy fast break i am putting 60 seconds on the clock adam we're going to start with you for the first question ready set go where would you like to see an NBA expansion team that isn't Vegas or Seattle? 
Um, Louisville. If it's not Boston or Milwaukee in the NBA Finals, who wins the East? Miami. James Harden's next team is... Clippers. Rank these Seinfeld side characters from three to one. Putty, Newman, Frankenstanza. Putty, Newman, Frankenstanza. <laughs> Subliminal, he gave you the answer. Keeping with TV and throwing it back old school, WNBA or NBA, which member of Saved by the Bar would have been the best player? Definitely won that for <laughs> Kelly? Is Kelly a character? Yeah, Kelly Kapowski is the right answer for anything related to Saved by Hey man, for, for a guess, that's the right guess. <laughs> All right, last one, we'll get you out of here. We're over time. Anyways, uh, growing up in Boston, who was your favorite self? Uh, Rajon Rondo. Boom, that is a great answer. Great I'll throw one more in there. Next time I'm in Boston, give me one place I need to visit. Fenway Park, baby. There it is. That's awesome. a good one. We'll, we'll teach Adam about some baseball. We'll get him a Fenway, Frank. I think that's a great answer. Michael Pino, ringer.com. Anything you got coming out this week? We're going to run this uh, right after. This is going to run today as we're talking. So anything you got to promote right now? Uh, I don't think so. No. Uh, we've got some uh, NBA preview, season preview stuff that should be dropping next week, I believe, on the ringer.com. So check that out and be doing a bunch of stuff once the season begins. So... Thank you guys so much for having me. This was a blast. Hey, man, appreciate you being on here. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll have you back again here soon. But that's going to do it for this episode of Green with Envy. As always, make sure you guys like, subscribe, follow us on YouTube, and playing us out here, we've got some black sheep optimists from down here in Austin, Texas. Peace, y'all. Every time I get this high, I lose my mind. It don't take much no more. Until I hit the floor. Every time I get this high, it's you I find It don't take much no more Until I'm at your door You cut me to my core, baby What can I say? You got me on the floor, you know I came to play I know I shouldn't, but you seem to take my pain away And every time I score, Jason Tatum fade away I close my eyes